Podcast Episode 3. Episode 3 is brought to you by Hands Off, the Jupiter or Zeus Free Chastity Belt. From the makers of Nymph Rape Insurance and the Shape Shifting God Detector Watch comes Hands Off, the Jupiter Zeus Free Chastity Belt. If you're like me, a devotee of Diana, then you'll want to be protected when out hunting in the woods or relaxing in some Loki Amoini. Hands Off Chastity Belts prevent Apollo, Mercury, or even the main man, Jupiter himself, from getting into your tunica. For a limited time, if you purchase Nymph Rape Insurance now, you'll get a hands-off chastity belt for free. May Diana be with you. You know, I don't normally do this, and I, I guess it's weird to say normally as if I were podcasting for 50 episodes, and it's only episode 3, but I do want to just take a minute to uh, talk about the intro music. Um, this is from Wicked, probably one of my favorite musicals, um, and I just thought that this uh, was probably the epitome um, of all that's going on and all these issues, I guess, except for one of them. Um just all the animosity, uh, and I thought it just really represented all the the anger that's going on between characters and everything, so I thought it was very perfect. I hope you enjoyed it. hope people aren't um, uh, disgusted with Broadway, you know. It's only going on for 30 seconds, so I'm sure you'll be okay. So I'm going to start off this episode like I normally do, once again, I'm saying that word, normally, with some questions. First off, from Zias. The cover of Detective Comics number 359 screams, Meet the new bad girl. Is she heroine or villainous? What is her startling secret identity? And back then, I imagine we wouldn't have a clue. Nowadays, with solicitations, sneak previews, and message board speculation, it's difficult to keep anything under wraps for long, isn't it? 
You know, this is really quite true. I still will get solicitations from time to time when they come out because they are generally so vague. And if there are any events out, they sometimes don't even show the cover or give any lines of description. So I feel like it is easier to not get anything ruined if only looking at solicitations. Sneak peeks usually give you the first six pages of an issue, which is, an, which is really all an issue needs to ruin the previous issue's cliffhanger. This is even true when looking at the uh, the issues that I'm reviewing this episode. Uh, at the end of issue number five of Batgirl, um, there's sort of a cliffhanger, and then the first two pages of issue number six actually, um, I guess, uh, conclude that cliffhanger. So in looking at those sneak previews, everything would already be ruined for you. And of course we have message boards. Now message boards are all about discussion. Um, I get all of my comics except for Batgirl from millordercomics.com. There's a little pimp for them. Um, so I usually get my comics later than people uh, who get them at a comic shop. They get them on time and I get everything from that month uh, in the first week of the following month. Um, so I really cannot look at any of these threads or news items or else things are completely ruined for me. And, you know, it's funny because I did just look at something for issue 618 for ASM and then all of a sudden I get into a debate with one of the creators. So really it's probably a bad idea that I, I even look at any of those threads. You know, it is really fun to read these older comics because I truly have no idea what's about to happen, and I really like that. Uh, nothing's ruined for me. I'm sort of with you guys on it, which is different. I think, you know, we're reading at the same time. I'm commenting, and, you know, you guys will have either similar or different opinions. Um, and that's why I really like this format and, in general, podcasts. So I'm very happy that I'm able to do this, you know, for myself, for other people. Okay, our next question comes from Amy. Where do you recommend starting for someone who is getting into Barbara Gordon comics more? I think I would say Batgirl Year One. I know that some people do not have a taste for old comics like the Silver Age, so for those it is probably not going to be easy to dive into showcase. Batgirl Year One is probably my favorite retelling of an origin, uh, and it really gets at the heart of the character. If you like that, then I suggest giving Showcase a try. Obviously, the two renderings of the character are quite different, but if you love Babs, Showcase is definitely worth it. And you know, something that relates to it from Kenny, he asks, uh, what's your favorite incarnation of Batgirl or Barbara Gordon? And I would definitely have to say the Babs in Batgirl Year One. Uh, the art and the writing are just spot on and create great Babs. Kenny also approves of the Killer Moth because he is awesome, and I definitely have to agree with that. From Noctis, he has, I think, three questions for me. Uh, number one, I hope you don't feel offended by this, but is it safe to assume and consider you as the guru of Batgirl knowledge, much like JR from the Crawl Space? Um, I'm not sure why I would be insulted. That is really flattering, actually. But I don't think I can honestly say that I'm the guru of Batgirl. Not yet, anyway. Uh, there are other people who know way more about her than I do. I think Perhaps by the end of this, you know, at the end of the show when I keep going through everything, through Showcase, through Birds of Prey, then perhaps I could call myself the guru. Um, I do believe that, like J.R. in his essays, I am analyzing Barbara and her history to a greater extent than anyone has done before. So I think I'm sort of taking a small step um, for podcasting, but a large step for Barbara Gordon fans, if I have to be corny. 
His second question, excluding Babs, who is your favorite bad girl? Personally, I've always been a huge fan of Cassandra Kane and considering and consider her as my top female DC character, despite her frustrating, nonsensical stint as a villain in the one-year-later time skip. I do not know much about the other Batgirls history-wise, but I'm really getting into the new Batgirl, so I think I will have to say Steph is currently my second fave. And his final question, speaking of Cass, who do you think would win in a fight, Cassandra Kane or Laura X-23 Kinney? And X-23 is um, Noctis's top female Marvel character. Mm, that's a toughie. Uh, you know, Cass has amazing martial arts skills, but I think when it comes down to it, she would probably fatigue much more quickly than Laura would. And let's be honest, Laura does have some adamantium quads who can beat those puppies. So I'd probably have to go with X-23 beating Cassandra in an all-out brawl. Um, Noctis, he also sent me an image of Summer Glau, uh, with the Alicia Silverstone mask on. It looked really good, both the photoshopping and Summer as Babs, uh, but I guess we'll all have to wait and see. Uh, you can see this image, along with two images by Pete Parker on my website, uh, .com. Um If you really look, it's really subtle, and I think it really worked. Uh, Pete Parker added uh, a green tone to Summer's eyes uh, and the red hair, so it really it works really well, and I guess we'll see. Uh, my next one is from Michael Bailey, and this is sort of a long one, and it sort of gets into a discussion, so it, it, uh, so bear with me, folks. Stella. So, I was listening to the second episode of your highly entertaining podcast, thank you, Michael, and was a bit confused about something you discussed during your review of the newer Batgirl series. You talked about a scene where Babs takes Stephanie to the Batcave basically to show her the hall of dead heroes in costumes and say, Hey, this work is dangerous and you have to understand what you are undertaking. I was all like, Wah? For a number of reasons. For one thing, it made it seem like she had not been in the cave before. You cleared that up for me pretty quick, but still it begs the question, what is the big deal about Steph being in the cave? She's been there before as Robin. So I dug through the archives here at the fortress and took out the issues of Robin where Steph became the girl wonder. The first thing I discovered is how few issues there were. Tim gave up being Robin in issue 125 because his father discovered his dual identity, and Tim basically quit to not only make his father happy, but also to protect Bruce because Jack Drake was threatening to go to the press. At least that's how I read it. In any case, Steph and Tim were an item at the time, and because of a romantic misunderstanding from issue 126 that would take too long to get into, Steph breaks into the Batcave and aggressively applies for the now vacant position of Robin, which, to much, much to everyone's surprise, excuse me, she gets. So right there, Steph had been in the cave, so the chances of her seeing at least Jason Todd's costume under glass are near 100%. I can't imagine Bruce showed her everything but that. Alrighty, Steph. Here's the giant penny, the dinosaur, the badass computer, but pay no attention to the object that looks like a glass display case with a white sheet over it. It didn't make sense. 
In the next issue, number 127, she is Robin for real and has been, that's funny, for real, for reals, she's Robin, okay, and has been for at least a month. So again, she saw the costume under glass. Beyond that, she was trained by Batman, so this girl has had it drilled into her head what her role is and what it means. Heck, in 127, Babs trains her by video conference, so Babs knows she's been in the cave. When she is fired for disobeying orders in issue 128, an act, I might add, that got Tim the gig in the first place, Batman kicks her out of the cave and takes away all of her privileges, but not, from the looks of it, her memory of being there. Actually, Michael, I might have to stop you there. I'm pretty sure that in a side panel, like really, really small, Batman actually pulls up one of those men in black doohickeys that make a really weird piercing noise and shining your eyes and then your, you know, your memory is erased. But I'll, I'll let you go with maybe being incorrect. Uh, continuing on, Michael says, my point, I do have one, is that it seems a lot of Steph's history has been glossed over for the sake of a dramatic scene. It was probably very well written, but this sort of thing bugs the crap out of me. But then again, I am something of a continuity fascist. So there you go. I think I might start calling you a Mussolini, my friend. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing the next episode. Talk to you soon, Michael. Okay. Um, this is sort of hard, I guess, to answer. If there is, like, a question, it's more of uh, a discussion. It'd probably be good to have Michael on, you know, to discuss this back and forth. I think it comes down to two, two issues. The first issue is age. And the second issue is, I guess, job, status, you know, all that good stuff. First of all, age. In the Robin series, um, what I assume, because I don't, I don't know, um, is that Stephanie is younger than she is now. Obviously, now she's eighteen, nineteen. Um, she just entered college, and at that time in Robin, I think she was in her later teens. I'd say sixteen or seventeen. So there's not much of a difference. But I think at that time, it probably would be more of an impact to actually see that giant penny and sort of lose all your stuff over that, like, look at that huge, giant penny. Whereas now, she is more mature, and even if the giant penny is no longer there, which it shouldn't be, because I think they cleared out, Dick cleared out the Batcave um, in one of the Batman issues, um, I think her priorities are set higher now. Um, her maturity, she's going to look at um, probably things that she's going to give reference for instead of a huge copper uh, Abraham Lincoln. My other point or argument, I suppose, if that's what it is, is this idea of job or status. Um, on the one hand, you have Stephanie as Batgirl, and on the other, you have Stephanie as Robin. When you come down to it, Robin was a temporary job. Um, I think readers already knew it. Uh, Stephanie probably probably already knew it, if only subliminally sort of embedded in her little um, fake 2D mind by the writers. And I think, you know, when we come up to something, we encounter transient moments, um, a, a snowflake uh, falling against a dusk gray background, um, perhaps a leaf standing up rather than um, sort of leaning down. Unless it's really unique, we're going to miss these things. Um, you know, the snowflake, um, we see a lot of snowflakes, and we see a lot of gray skies, so we'll probably not really look at this. Whereas the leaf, which is sort of 
going against gravity, um, you're going to remember that. So, you know, Steph, when she sees these costumes, I feel like, you know, you can almost imagine a poodle, you know, looking at this and saying, oh, how cool, how cool, oh, wait, a giant penny. I think it probably will always go back to the coolness factor, and that some of the gadgets that Batman has, and the giant penny, and the dinosaur, if you really did show these things, she would probably pay more attention to those things. And now she's Batgirl. I think that she fills out the costume, I know how bad that sounds, she fills it out more than she did in the Robin costume. Robin, was it ever really, you know, suited for a girl? Whereas Batgirl, this is sort of her thing, you know? It's been four, she's the fourth, I guess, to wear it, you know, if we count Betty. Um, and she is a little more mature, but she's also a little immature. When Stephanie does look at these cases, Miller writes it as if it were the first time. And even though it is, you know, the second, the third time, depending on how many times she saw that, really, it is the first time, if that makes sense. Um, it's the first time of her being more mature and understanding. It's the first time that it actually... Um, it's the first time that it actually relates to her. And Miller writes Barbara so that even though Stephanie is looking at these costumes, once again, you know, this word reverence and how cool, you know, she's not looking at it correctly. And Barbara comes in and tells her, you know, these are not there just for show. You know, you either retire or you die or you get shot. So when Barbara comes and says these things, it's relating to both of the characters. It's sort of a subtle warning to Steph, and then, you know, it's reminiscing for Barbara, which is sort of always going to be painful for her. Um, I think Miller does a good job doing this. It is a really good scene, probably one of the best of that issue, issue two, I believe. Um, and I can see where it does seem like it is the first time. But like I said, I think it needs to be written that way because the Stephanie that we're reading now, I believe, is completely different from the immature one that we were seeing in Robin, we were seeing as spoiler. You know, now she's actually getting proper guidance. She's actually caring about her job. Not to say that she didn't as Robin, but I think she was sort of going off half-cocked half the time anyways. So... I do. I wish I could uh, discuss this with you, Michael. Um, unfortunately, I'm just talking to myself, and I really hope I did not ramble on, but I try to, you know, get my thoughts out there, so hopefully it's understandable. Okay, so let's move on to some news. Uh, I should say, you know, before we go on to news, or before I go on to news, what am I, Venom now? Um, thank you, first of all, for everyone who asks me questions. You know, changes from week to week. There are some repeat offenders, but no, I really have fun, you know, answering questions, and it's, besides the reviews, it's sort of a way to get feedback, um, you know, if people are enjoying it, um, and it's a way to, I guess, give advice or my opinion, even, uh, further than I am in the reviews. So be sure to email me, obviously, Batgirl to Oracle uh, at blogspot.com. Or I'm sorry, Batgirl to Oracle at gmail.com. Uh, you can find that linked uh, on my webpage. And also, you know, if you comment, because um, I check my blog off, and, you know, if you write a question there, then I pick them up as well. So thanks again. Keep them coming.
So let's go to news. Uh, going off of episode two, I was reporting, you know, Taylor Swift. Will she, won't she be Supergirl? But, you know, Helen Slater can rest easy. DC Comics, thanks to Scotland's Sunday Mail newspaper, has let us all know that the prospects of a Supergirl movie starring country pop singing sensation and megastar Taylor Swift are utterly false. Yays. So I guess now we can focus on other travesties like the Spider-Man series being rebooted, but you know, let's not go into that. Next, comicbook.com has said that the two characters to watch in 2010 are Batgirl and Supergirl. They say, DC has quite a stake in this one, as two of their characters are burgeoning in very different ways. Supergirl has found herself front and center in the latest happenings with New Krypton, and coupled with Superman's lack of presence makes her one to watch for 2010. Batgirl is back, this time with former spoiler Stephanie Brown, wearing the cow, all under the guidance of Barbara Gordon. Both of these heroines have a promising year ahead. I do agree, but of course I'll be watching Steph's growth rather than Supergirl's. It would be interesting to hear what a Superman guru like Michael Bailey has to say of such things. And you can actually in his uh, Views from the Long Box, episode 100, I ask him something uh, that relates to this. Um, next up, Comic Book Resources has named Cassandra Kane, the holder of the cow before Stephanie, as number four of the top ten comic book females of the decade. I know that she was a favorite of many, and of course, I am very sorry with how she was pulled off the roster, but I have a feeling that Steph will fight her way into everyone's hearts by the end of the year. And also, I do know that um, apparently Cassandra Kane has been said to be the the character to watch in 2010. Um, this was uh, just sort of spoken off the cuff, I guess, um, by Bertone. Um, I'm not sure where it came from, but it'll be interesting if that comes true. Number one, if anyone's interested, was Batwoman, uh, which I really appreciate because she has become a great character. I've liked her and her sometimes lover, Renee Montoya, ever since 52. A random we saw on comicbookmovie.com, where member in Tyler We Trust 82 gives many guesses for actors and their comic book counterparts. He starts with the upcoming Green Lantern movie and then moves on to Justice League. He casted Amy Adams as Babs, or Oracle, and I have to say it is a good pick. I'm a huge fan of Amy Adams, but once again, I really have to see these things to believe them. I encourage all of you to read this guy's choices. A lot of them are really spot on. Ian Somerhalder as Dick Grayson? Heck yes! Next... Illustrator Cliff Chang has created an enjoyable collection of comic book hero-to-album cover conversions. Cliff Chang has taken several classic 12-inch album covers, converting them into what's very obviously their comic world counterpart. My friend and the magnanimous Michael Bailey showed these to me one day when we were recording the Spider-Man Crawl Space podcast, actually. Uh, apparently, they are also being sold due to the amount of interest that Chang has gotten. I do have the website, but instead of telling you all these backsplashes and hyphens and stuff, I will just, when this episode comes up, uh, post the links, because there are a few of them that I talk about anyways, so you can find them on my webpage if you want to go there. Uh, these 12-inch albums are being sold for $20. The Teen Titans is the Brat Pack from The Breakfast Club, Electra standing in for Jennifer Beals in Flashdance, Vampirella on a Duran Duran cover, and Batgirl and her Batbike in a Purple Rain-esque cover. Thanks for the heads up, Michael. I probably won't be getting the 
any of these, and you know, I won't be getting the back row one, especially since I have my own personal splash page of Babs, but I think any Babs fan should check it out. And now for some very exciting news. You know, every episode, I keep saying, you know, every episode, like I've been going 50, but you know, when I do these episodes and I'm constantly scouring Google News, any sort of news item that I can randomly pick up and, hey, this is kind of related to Babs, let me use it. But, you know, legitimately coming out this month were news item upon news item of Babs stuff, so I was very excited about that. So first of all, the DC solicits for April lists The Brave and the Bold, number 33, as being written by JMS, great guy, and featuring a story about Batgirl, Wonder Woman, and Zatanna. Now, one wouldn't think this had anything to do with Babs until one looks at the cover. Yeppers, that's Babs alright. So April 21st, pick it up. If Babs didn't sway you, surely the fact that JMS is writing it did. And sort of the big news, the climactic news, Birds of Prey the comic series is returning in the spring with a dynamic duo Gail Simone and Ed Bennings. In a Newsorama.com interview, interview from Newsorama.com, quote, DC Entertainment's announcements of the DCU 2010 landscape continue on today, courtesy of DCU blog The Source, with news of the return of a book, team, and creative team. Birds of Prey, canceled in the reshuffling of the Batman family of comics in spring 2009, is returning spring 2010. Gail Simone is at the helm as writer, returning to the book that is largely responsible for her success at DC. Her original artist for the series, Ed Benes, is also returning to the series. It will relaunch with a new number one, Familiar members Oracle, Black Canary, Huntress, and Lady Blackhawk will be joined by at least two other members, currently blacked out on the cover art released with the announcement. In the first interview on the project with our friends at Comics Alliance, Simone expresses her excitement to return to the series and characters and says, I don't plan to let go this time, explaining her desire to be on the book for the long haul. End quote. I'm having a total bad schasm over here. This is really exciting news, though I wish I could now find 1 through 65 of the first run so that I could read that before the new one came out. But of course, in a new interview that was actually posted, uh, Miss Simone does comment that you don't need to have read um, the first series in order to sort of jump onto this one, which is always good to hear, though sometimes they lie. Final crisis. Um, now, you know, if you look at the promo image, we do see Babs, Black Canary, Lady Blackhawk, and the Huntress prominently displayed. And then in the background, like was stated above, um, there are the two blacked out figures mentioned. Now, my guesses right now are that the one with the cape is Stephanie and Batgirl, because that sort of makes sense. And the other one, which is extremely bulky, um, I'm just going to throw out that it might be Wendy Harris in some sort of suit that helps her walk. Um, who knows if this is correct or not? Uh, Wendy Harris, do I find her interesting? Would I like to see her in a Birds of Prey book? Probably not. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Kevin Cushing, you might know him, aspiring comics writer, he thinks that it would be redundant to have Batgirl in Birds of Prey. And he's probably right. Um, and I also don't think that she's ready uh, to be in the team. Um, you know, she does make mistakes, which I do like because we are not infallible. Um but, you know, she's still learning, and I think she needs to learn on her own. But at the same time, wouldn't that be sort of a slap in the face to not have her on the team, have somebody else? 
So if we do think that maybe maybe Stephanie's not on the team, then who is the caped figure? It could be Cassandra. Um, because, like, you know, I heard from Bertoni, she's the character to watch. But in issue number six of Batgirl, well, Miller sort of made it clear that, I don't know, she's far away, and but Simone did state in an interview that she's going to try to keep this separate from Batgirl. She's appreciated everything Miller has done, but this is sort of, you know, her thing. So it could be Cassandra, and a couple people on my blog have actually guessed that it's Misfit. I guess we'll see. Um, Misfit is, you know, once again, um, you know, I'm using the actual definition. Misfit is a queer character. She is just an odd duck. Um, and I don't know if she could fit the team either. So if I had to guess, um, well, I already did guess, but if I had to say which one I prefer, I probably would go with Cassandra. You know, her fans would sort of get screwed over. Um, and I think that'd be a nice place for her on the team. But like I said, you know, we'll just have to see. So coming up are my reviews. Um, if you want to read ahead or, you know, you're really excited about this, you need a bowl of popcorn um, and your showcase with you, we're going to go through Detective Comics number 369, Batman number 197, and Batgirl issues 4, 5, and 6. Sort of piling it on this episode. I might actually break the 30-minute mark. Um, just sort of tired of playing the catch-up game, so I'm trying to um, get ready for a surprise next episode and try to plow through the back roll issues. So enjoy this music, get pumped, and I'll be back shortly with some awesome reviews. you guys. Uh, hopefully you had a nice break, you popped some popcorn, made a sandwich, who knows. But now we're going to get into the meat of the podcast. So first up, we're going to review, or I'm going to review, Detective Comics number 369, also known as Batgirl Breaks Up the Dynamic Duo. This comic came out in November of 1967. The cover penciler was Gil Kane, the cover inker was Murphy Anderson. Uh, internally, uh, the writer was Gardner Fox, the penciler, the main man, Carmine Infantino, and the inker, Sid Green. Some memorable, 
memorable quotes that came through. Let go, Batman. Batgirl and I go together like ham and eggs, or hot dogs and mustard. Robin's got a crush on Batgirl. Sure, that's the answer. The Green Bay Packers lost a great linebacker when they didn't pick me in the draft. In the opening of the issue, Batgirl makes modifications to her bat bike so that she can trace certain vibrations on specific vehicles. While testing her new multicolor light tracing beams, she learns of a robbery at the Gotham Gothic Arts Museum and chases after the crooks. Batgirl gets a little stuck in the mud, if you will, and Batman and Robin later arrive to help out. Batman lands in the swamp, and after rounding up the robbers, Batgirl notices that there is something wrong with Batman and asks Robin to help her out. Later, in her civilian guise of Barbara Gordon, she does research to learn that Batman has been infected with swamp fever, which, after seven days, causes a full body collapse. Barbara vows to act as Batman's secret guardian angel until the swamp fever runs its course through Batman's system. Batgirl follows Batman in Robin's patrols and is even able to capture the ringleader of a heist who is able to escape from the dynamic duo. In order to keep a better watch and limit Batman's activities, Batgirl tells Robin what's going on and the two team up, making Batman believe that Robin is leaving their partnership to fight crime with Batgirl instead. Batman loses the tug of war and is resentful that Robin would leave their partnership so easily. The two always remain a step ahead of Batman, patrolling the same route before Batman can get there. Batgirl and Robin believe that they can stop crimes until the fever finally takes effect and knocks Batman out. Batman finally has enough of being last to a crime scene and decides to go about his patrol in reverse. He collapses midway through a fight and almost takes a bullet before Batgirl and Robin step in to save him. Batman realizes why Batman, or I'm sorry, Batman realizes why Robin deserted him and agrees that he would not have stopped his patrols to rest. Batman gets the medical treatment he needs in his Bruce Wayne identity, and Commissioner Gordon and Barbara visit Wayne and give him Chinese oranges. Wayne knows from research on swamp fever that Chinese oranges are especially beneficial and wonders if the commish knows that he is Batman. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the city, Catwoman reads the recent news about Batgirl and vows to get her claws on Batman's heart. Thinking that Batgirl is competition for Batman's affections. Cliffhanger! Okay, so let's start with the cover. I just find the fact that Batman and Batgirl are playing tug-of-war with Robin as the rope. H-I-Larious. That's hilarious, folks. It's a good cover, but more of a red herring since you don't really know why they are playing tug-of-war. This issue, like Detective Comics number 363, really plays to Batgirl's strengths. We we see her detective skills, her gadget skills, her fighting skills, and her compassion and concern, all of which make her a well-rounded character. I had to laugh when one of Batman's symptoms was described twice, twice, as mustard-colored complexion. Couldn't you have just said jaundice? I mean, it is true that Robin later compares the new dynamic duo to a hot dog and mustard, no guess as to which is which, so maybe there is some connection there, but still, mustard? Come on, jaundice, jaundice. It's funny watching Batman squirm when listening to Robin tell him he wants to team up with Batgirl. It seems like it's appropriate to say that Batman is jealous, especially since he and Robin have been teaming up for 27 of our years. For Robin to leave him so easily must have been a punch to the gut. 
Even Batman doesn't know the foresight he has when saying that Robin has a crush on Batgirl. Of course, that is a long way away. It is easy to get that impression from the artwork. I mean, if you want to put yourself in Batman's boots, all you have to do is look at the panels without reading. You've got the tug of war, the whispers, the bat bike. It really looks like Robin and Batgirl are a thing. The best panel in this issue, if your reading's showcase, uh, if you turn to page 71, the top middle, Bruce is trying to get Dick to stay home and do homework, but Dick explains that there are teacher conferences the next day and therefore no school. The look on Bruce's face when he says, oh, as well as Alfred's tentative look behind him is classic. Bruce's look basically is what happens when you bring food to a dog and then put it on top of a refrigerator because it is not time to eat yet. So the dog just sort of stares at you and wondering, what's going on? Why can't I have my food? And, you know, it's weird how Batman, or I guess Bruce, really, jumps to the conclusion that Jim Gordon might know a secret from the oranges, never making any sort of leap that Babs could be Batgirl. It's somewhat insulting, but I guess Babs' civilian um, guise is just that deceiving. I mean, who could suspect a librarian with buns on her head to be the Domino Daredevil? She's got a better uh, secret identity than... Good old Superman. No offense, Michael. Um, and Catwoman. Ah, yes, Catwoman. What's with the creepy eyebrows in the 60s? I swear, they were everywhere in comics, and they are just not becoming. At least they get better in the next issue. You know, overall, this issue contains the the trend of giving respectful comments to Batgirl and showing that Batman and Robin do respect her. I think that the only slip was probably at the beginning in the swamp when Robin told Batgirl to relax while they took over. You know, we can't all be perfect. Um, and back to Catwoman, uh, her entrance into the fold, as well as her plan should make for an interesting story and, dare I say, cat fight. This was a good issue and entertaining. If anything, it was fun to watch Batman squirm and see a tiny, probably not really there, hint of a romantic future between Dick and Babs. And also, before I forget, her PhD was mentioned again in this issue. The only reason I bring this up is because at some point in her history this changes, and I'm just sort of waiting to see when that actually happens. Um, so, like I said, pretty decent issue. I think I will give it 7 out of 10 bats. Okay, the next issue we have is Batman number 197. It is also called Catwoman Sets Her Claws for Batman. It came out in December of 1967. The cover penciler, my guy, Carmine Infantino, and the cover inker, Mike Esposito. Internally, we've got the writer Gardner Fox, penciler Frank Springer, and inker Sed. Green, Sid Green, not said, which means but in Latin, B-U-T. Um, okay, so believing that Batgirl is attempting to get Batman to fall in love with her, Catwoman vows to win Batman's heart. Catwoman begins prowling the city, capturing cooks, crooks, excuse me, and helping out Batman in order to make Batgirl look bad. This is all happening unbeknownst to Barbara until she hears news over the radio that Catwoman is constantly belittling Batgirl's skills. Batgirl, using her detective skills, figures the next robbery would be an eastern treasure known as the Catafalque, a.k.a. a classy word for a beer, and rushes to the museum to find that Catwoman is already there. 
During the fight with the thieves, Catwoman secretly causes Batgirl to botch her attempt to stop the crooks on several occasions, allowing Catwoman to easily make Batgirl look bad when Batman and Robin ultimately arrive. Batgirl admits that she must be a terrible superhero, admitting that Catwoman is better than she and leaves with a tear running down her cheek. Catwoman tries to get Batman to admit her into his club, but he says that he is satisfactory at the moment. Great word. Catwoman decides if he will not propose marriage to her, then she will propose to him. At the Batcave, Batman and his brilliant deductive reasoning leads him to conclude that Catwoman is in love with him. Robin, along with the rest of the world, says, Duh. Later, Batman, Robin, Batgirl, and Catwoman all appear at the Gotham Coin Chateau to stop crooks from robbing the place. In the middle of the fight, it turns out to be a trap, orchestrated by Catwoman in order to knock Batman out and learn his secret identity. All three heroes had enough foresight to wear paint under their masks to continue to preserve their secret identities. This reminds me of something, and if I remember, I will discuss it later. Okay, Batgirl later realizes that Catwoman was employing the crooks that were committing all the cat-centric heists and that she never reformed in the first place. The heroes find themselves in a cataphonic trap, which brutally attacks the brain. Only once Babs hypnotizes Batman so that he can wander out of the safety circle and turn off the device could Batgirl have the honors of finally putting an end to Catwoman's catty crusade. Okay, first of all... How ridiculous is the design and name of the kitty car? I mean, really? Really? <sighs> Sadly, you know, throughout the entire issue, Catwoman gives women a really bad name. Just the fact that she is trying to turn over a new rock, as I like to say, just for the romantic attentions of Batman is so idiotic that it makes me want to burn a bra. You know, I really like Selina Kyle. She's probably one of my f um, favorite... I guess, anti-heroes in the DC verse. Um, and my favorite incarnation of her is probably the one from Batman the Animated Series. But I really hate this characterization of her, just this single issue. Uh, and of course, Catwoman has a cat compact. Is no woman safe from these diabolical purses and accessories? And speaking of idiotic, how many hints or outright statements does it take for the world's greatest detective, quote, end quote, to understand that Catwoman has feelings for him? Let's take an intermission and a pause for my grievances. The Parker brothers? Who knew that the famous game makers were a gang of crooks? I did not know. And we're back. Okay. You know, I thought the male characters were getting better, and I know I shouldn't be so harsh on the Silver Age, but one of Robin's quotes really is, that suits me fine. Nabbing crooks is man's work. Apparently he has a terrible memory, since he must have forgotten that Batgirl saved Batman when Robin had no idea what was going on just last month. I was utterly speechless when Batgirl was crying and giving up. That's not the Batgirl I know and love. Crying in front of a man is just going to prove what he originally thought of you, that you are just a weaker form of a superhero. Plus, Babs would never give up that quickly. The highlight of the issue is when Babs was described as boss lady while in the library. Uh, I really got a kick out of this, probably because um, I call Brad Douglas from the Spider-Man Crawl Space boss man all the time, so it sort of reminded me of that. You know, Babs does deserve that name, not just in terms of her position in the library, but the fact that she practically single-handedly figured out Catwoman's scheme and saved everyone, albeit with the hypnotizing glove, which is kind of ridiculous, uh, from the cataphonic trap. 
Ah, yes. The constant use of cat as a prefix or within a word got a little tiresome. It was cute and thoughtful in the beginning, but then it just seemed to go over the top. I had to look up some of the words that were being used, mostly cataphonic and cataphalc. Cataphonic was not even in the Webster's Dictionary, and even as I was typing my show notes, I was constantly getting the squiggly red lines, which is actually really uh, vexing. You know, it seems like the writers were taking words from a cat dictionary. Finally, uh, I am glad to see that in Batman, at least, Selina has the normal eyebrows compared to the ones that uh, we saw in Detective. So I would give this issue 5 out of 10 bats, probably my least favorite of the 1967 issues. Things were so weird and backwards that I thought Nixia's Pitlilik was to blame. I tried, Michael, I tried. Nixia's Pitlilik. I swear you can't pronounce that guy's name without a Russian accent. So now we're going to take a wonderful time trip from 1967 all the way up to... 2009, um, and no, I'm not incorrect. These issues came out before the the new year. So first we have Batgirl number four, Batgirl Rising Field Test. It was written by Brian Q. Miller, art by Lee Garbett and Trevor Scott, and the cover by Phil Noto. The cover to this issue exclaims, Meet the new Batgirl, which is exactly what Detective Comics number 359 shouted in 1967. So that was very interesting. Anyway, okay, at the end of the last issue, we saw that Stephanie just received her own newly designed costume. This issue, we see Steph testing her costume out. Gordon and Gage talk about the old times and an odd murder. Babs helps Wendy push through the pain and comfort her about the loss of her brother Marvin. Batgirl faces Livewire, has a restful moment with Babs, does some homework, and misses out on some waffles. Gotta love those waffles. First, I would like to talk about Stephanie's new suit. When the cover image first came out, it was in a news story about the new suit. At that time, I recall hearing a lot of dry heaves in the background when it was being discussed. I didn't like it, mainly for the side panels. It really made her look like an enlarged centipede, and the way the costume was striated, I also compared her to Constrictor from Marvel. Once I actually saw the internal panels, however, I really liked the costume. I think it must have been the colors used on the cover, or that I secretly missed the weapons purse. Just kidding. But inside the issue, the suit really comes together. It seems like it incorporates all the different colors used in past suits. This allows Stephanie to have a suit of her own, and thus be separated from the other incarnations of Batgirl, while still keeping a subtle connection to them. In the words of uh, George and Michael, who I was talking to about this a little bit, uh, it's got a taste from the 60s TV show with a spoiler spin, and it really does if you look at it. The issue starts off really well, giving us scenes with Steph and her mom discussing school and Steph and Babs discussing the suit, two different relationships with the same girl. We're still seeing Batgirl learning the ropes and making mistakes, and her comments and questions make this more lighthearted than the previous issues. The relationship between Batgirl and Oracle has become more comfortable now that Babs has accepted Stephanie. The two really read well together, and the writing here is well done. They seem more like equals and friends, which is good because a friend is what Babs needs right now. She does not need to be a mother figure. I also enjoyed the lighthearted quipping between Gordon and Gage, and it parallels that of Babs and Steph. 
While I conjectured last episode about what role Wendy Harris is going to play in the series, I believe that I can definitively say that she is another Barbara, refusing to admit defeat, not reaching out to anyone, pushing through the pain. These are all things that we have seen before, but now Babs is on the other side. We all know this is going to be a story of growth, but who will grow and will it be stale? Those are my questions. Livewire seems an interesting, albeit random, villain to use, but I'm pretty sure this is a transition issue slash one-shot, so I don't think we can complain very much. The writers do keep giving her big villains to fight rather than small-time thugs, and this act of writing bestows confidence in the character. This time it is someone from Superman's rogues gallery, which is different than what we saw with Scarecrow. I very much enjoy the panels of Batgirl getting fried by Livewire, with only her hair showing the response to the electricity. Her expression is priceless, readying herself for an impact that the suit takes. My favorite scene is at the end when Steph and Babs are talking. Long night? Yup. Want to talk about it? You do your homework? Touché. <laughs> Classic evasion. What's nice is that they are both content with just a little quiet time together. Like I said before, this relationship really has the feel of a friendship, which I think is good for both of the characters. Aha! And the return of the waffles. I actually really want to know how many issues are going to have waffles in them. I'm telling you, supporting cast member of the year, definitely better than a certain Michelle Gonzalez we all know and love. My only concern for the issue I voiced the previous episode, the Batgirl and Detective Gage relationship is teased by Commissioner Gordon, but I hope that's all it is, a tease. I don't want this series to be ruined by becoming a soap opera that's really awkward. I'd give this 8 out of 10 bats. This was probably one of the better transition issues slash one shots that I have read this year, i.e. 2009. The next issue is Batgirl number 5, Batgirl Rising, Core Requirements Part 1. One of three. It's written by Brian Q. Miller. Lee Garbett is doing the pencils. Sandra Hope and Oliver Gnome are the guest inkers. And Phil Noto is doing the cover again. A fire at Gracia Global Housing Development brings back supporting cast member Francisco and adds some intrigue. Batgirl and Diesel, the arsonist, go one-on-one until Batman and Robin make an entrance to make it two-on-one. And no, I did not count incorrectly. Batgirl freezes Damien. I love you so much, Steph. Passion flies between Dick and Babs, and not the good kind. Damon makes his feelings for Stephanie clear. Steph makes a move on Francisco. Commissioner Gordon makes a move on behalf of Babs and Detective Nick, which ends badly. We learn that Damien is a 10-year-old creeper. Who would have thunk it? Stephanie turns out to be an 18-year-old creeper in a black slip and gets shot in the head. The writing for this issue is very well done. The voices of all the characters seem to be spot on, and there were several moments where I was just grinning like a fool, which means that it's a very good issue. The relationship via comms between Oracle and Batgirl remains comfortable, and many times it seems like they are on the same wavelength, which is very appropriate. I like the look on Oracle's face when she's telling Batgirl to hurry up before she has company. Biting her lip not only shows concern for Batgirl, but for herself and the fear of being chastised by Batman. The scene where Batman and Robin burst in on an offended Batgirl is probably my least favorite, just because Damien tarnishes everything for me. His attitude irks me to no end. 
This is why the fact that Stephanie accidentally freezes him is perhaps one of the best things that I have ever read. Of course, this gives Dick incentive to yell at Babs. It's clear there is actually more going on than just Stephanie, but that's really what drives the encounter. The conversation ends dramatically, which I suppose fits the two characters. During the first Damien-Steph conversation, I was actually really sorry that Steph did not have a knife. If I were a comic book character, I would cut you, Damien. I love the trip down memory lane as we see Stephanie become professionally familiar with the library. She's not the best librarian I've seen, and she seems to be thinking more with her hormones than with her brain, but it is kind of a nice nod back, uh, back to the good old Barbara Gordon that we know and love. Had Babs not been thinking with her hormones, maybe she would have not hulked out on poor Nick. Once again, her disability gets in the way, though this time in an roundabout way. Nick seems like a really nice and intelligent guy, so if it can't be Dick, I'll settle for Nick. That should be a little quote phrase for this episode. The interaction between Steph and Francisco seems to go better than the Babs-Nick one, and ends with perhaps the best quote found throughout the entire issue. I'll text you, after you shake the little omen fanboy, giving you the stink eye. Then we have another Stephanie Damon interaction. And this one's much better than the last one. You know, as Damien draws disturbing images in the snow, he explains to Stephanie that he is trying to figure it out. Such a creeper. Damien basically makes a comment that Stephanie doesn't have a chest, which is, number one, weird and creepy, and number two, totally false, since Steph did at one point have a kid, and we have all seen her modest chest. I guess he's just trying to be annoying. Points to Damien for succeeding. Of course, then Stephanie becomes a creeper, wearing a black slip that belongs to Babs and coming into the same diner as Francisco, pretending to be nonchalant. Oh dear. What I don't like is that Stephanie completely goes against the warning that she gives Damien not to jeopardize their identities, when she herself jeopardizes her identity by fighting off the bad guys in that diner. Except for a few flaws, the issue was rather good. Um, I'd give it 8 out of 10 bats again. Okay, our third and final Batgirl. Batgirl number 6, Batgirl Rising, Core Requirements Part 2 of 3. Written by Brian Q. Miller again. Lee Garbitz once again doing the penciling. Trevor Scott is the inker. And Phil Noto is doing the cover. So Batgirl gets off easy with a concussion from the bullet to the head, and Oracle derails the ambulance before it reaches the hospital where her mother works. Her as in Stephanie, just to clarify. A physical fight between Robin and Batgirl causes Batman to sideline them both. While Oracle works with Batman on the kidnapping of Francisco, taking frequent trips down memory lane, Robin and Batgirl team up to find Francisco on their own. This leads them to Jordana Spence and a shocking revelation. Roxy Rocket and Wyatt blindside Batman. We find out that Francisco only pretended to be kidnapped to help his father's debt. Roulette is pulling the strings and Batman is in a heap of doo-doo unless Batman and Batgirl can save him. Unless Bat- wow. Um, that would be unless- Batgirl and Robin can save him, unless um, Batman's having some sort of existential crisis. Okay, so first of all, the concussion. I've been to the gun range a couple of times now, and I have to say that if I shot at your head at close range, I probably would not miss. The kidnapper is either a terrible shot, or, because we do later find out that it is all an elaborate ruse, perhaps he was really aiming just to graze her temple. 
I'm sorry, Donovan. That's the best I can do to explain it. Secondly, why does Oracle call Francisco Fernando a Okay, going back to the first few pages, uh, we really feel Stephanie's confusion with real-time events mixed with events we have either not seen or we have seen. First, we see Cassandra telling Steph not to look for her. Then we see Tim uh, telling her not to wear the spoiler outfit again. This happened, I believe, in Red Robin number two. It could have been the first one. I can't recall. And then, of course, Black Mask pointed a gun at uh, Stephanie. This could possibly be after what George likes to call torture porn of Stephanie. The Cassandra panel is most puzzling because she left the Cape and Cow so suddenly and really flew off the face of the planet slash the comic world. I really have no idea what's in store for her. Uh, for the first time, someone other than Stephanie notices Stephanie's progress. Oracle comments that some parts of her training are definitely sticking, and she's happy about that. And, you know, as I was thinking about this review, I was actually trying to figure out whether I had anything to say about the Nick-Jim-Batman interaction. I didn't until I wondered whether Batman knew that Nick had been set up with Babs, and that's why he was acting so cold. I doubt it, but it is funny to conjecture nonetheless. Batgirl and Robin bicker, 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 and fight like they're siblings, and it's deeply disturbing to think that Dick and Babs were once in this very same position. Babs brings this up, and the thought makes me, along with Batman and Oracle, physically ill. At least Batgirl and Robin come to some sort of agreement and are able to almost work together. We'll see in the next issue whether or not this pays off. And speaking of Dick and Babs, the voices of these two characters are very well done. Captured are the anger of Dick, the tension between the two, and the subtle longing of them both. I love the panel where Babs is on one side, Dick on the other, and, be and in between excuse me, are the old school Robin and Batman. Robin and Batgirl makes me nostalgic. I'm not really sure why I'm confusing characters. It's, I guess it happens to the best of us. It's ironic that Batgirl goes to her college nemesis Jordana in order to get information on Francisco's kidnapping. Here's an example of Batgirl using her smarts in order to investigate. It is also ironic that it comes down to Batgirl and Robin to save Batman. And from the duress in Oracle's voice, they had better do it soon. Finally, let's talk about the villains. Once again, we have third-tier villains that are related to big-name superheroes. Roxy Rocket made her appearance in Batman Adventures and later Batman the Animated Series. Riot is a frequent foe of Superman, and Roulette, a different class of supervillain, has tussled with the JSA, though she is portrayed here in her standard role of glorified booking. What's funny is that I recently watched the... JLU episode of The Cat and the Canary, which is one of my favorites, and that was really my first introduction to the character of Roulette. One would think that Roxy, Rocket, and Wyatt would be enough to fight Batman, but then Dr. Phosphorus is randomly thrown into the mix in a way that doesn't really seem to fit, as if he were some sort of last-minute addition by the editor. Overall, this issue was pretty good and had a lot of interactions between different characters that really showed different personalities and feelings coming through. Um, and I think all of those interactions really added depth to the players. Uh, once again, I would give this issue 8 out of 10 bats. You know, I was about to go on to my recommendation, and as I was doing that last review, I suddenly remembered um, what I was reminded of when I was doing Batman 197. It's this idea of 
removing your mask and having the paint underneath. And something that really irks me about the movies is that whenever, and it's mostly the Batman movies, whenever Batman or, you know, if you watch Batman or Robin, whenever they take off their mask, there's no eyeliner, no, like, black around their eyes. It's just like, that's the way it was. When you can clearly tell that he was wearing that. And it sort of irks me because I think, you know, several times in comics history, it has been actually really recognized that they do wear paint underneath to make it black, to really black out the eyes. So I just don't understand why, you know, Christian Bale can't take off his mask and have black around. Yes, it would look silly, but I think it's more realistic that way so that's what i was reminded of that whole thing um the painting and uh when catwoman pulls off everyone's mask and they they were smart enough to put that on okay so i'm gonna jump to my literary recommendation uh this episode i'm gonna recommend the lovely bones by alice bold um, it is the story of a 14-year-old girl who, after being murdered, watches from heaven as her family and friends go on with their lives, while she herself comes to terms with her own death. And really only then is she able to move on to the, the actual heaven, because she is sort of in this in-between. The title comes from the near end of the book, where Susie Salmon, uh, Salmon, the main character, says... These were the lovely bones that had grown around my absence, the connections, sometimes tenuous, sometimes made at great cost, but often magnificent, that happened after I was gone, and I began to see things in a way that let me hold the world without me in it. The events my death brought were merely the bones of a body that would become whole at some unpredictable time in the future. The price of what I came to see as this miraculous lifeless body had been my life. It was really a wonderful piece, although I disagreed with one thing that happened at the end. I saw the movie, and it actually did stick pretty closely to the book, I'd say. Uh, maybe 75%. Um, it really only focuses on the first four years after Susie's death, and then it merges some things in the beginning with some things in the end in order to wrap up the story. It really had a great cast. I'm a big fan of Rachel Weisz, and uh, you will recognize Susie if you have seen um, Atonement. Uh, it was a girl who played... Uh, Bryony, um, and of course, Peter Jackson really adds his magic. So this episode marks the end of Batgirl's first year in publication. We saw her origin, her steady rise to being respected by the boys, her first team-ups, unknowingly discovering Batman's secret identity, foiling crooks in both her civilian and Batgirl guise, mind-boggling switcheroos, and even some female competition. It's certainly been a whirlwind six issues. My least favorite of 1967 was probably Batman number 197, which I reviewed this episode. My favorite was probably Bab's introduction in Detective Comics number 359. To celebrate this landmark year, the next episode will be very special, but that is all I'm going to say at the time. Once again, I welcome questions and comments about the the episode in general, the issues that I reviewed, or the news that I brought up. I'm especially interested to hear your thoughts on Birds of Prey returning and on what you think of my conjectures. As January draws to a close, I hope that all of you are keeping to your resolutions and enjoying the weather, whatever the weather may be. For my fellow boarders out there, keep shredding. Thanks for listening, and be sure to avoid any cat astrophes while I'm away. Hmm? Well, let's say goodbye, all.